and welcome to the Pac-Man Podcast, Patriotic American Citizen. I'm Ted Flint on the BMG Network. Well, you know, I'm going to begin with uh, what everybody's talking about, certainly on the national level, Joe Biden and his son Hunter and this abandoned laptop. And uh, the emails retrieved from Hunter Biden's laptop show Joe Biden used the email address Robert L. Peters at PCI.gov as one of his pseudonyms while he was Barack Obama's VP. Biden also used J.R. Beware as an email address to hide Hunter's bribery and influence peddling scheme. <clears throat> I mean, business dealings. A John Flynn CC'd Hunter on 10 emails containing his father's daily schedule. Now, we've heard from Biden for the last two years. He had no connection with his son's business dealings. His son didn't take money and make all these millions from the Ukraine and China. And now we find out he did. Even CNN had to admit that Trump was right. All this has been going on. You know, it's no secret. It's no newsbreaker that Joe Biden is the biggest liar ever to occupy the Oval Office. According to the New York Post, Biden's other known pseudonyms, Robin, uh, Robin Ware, and as I mentioned, J.R. Beware, made requests for certain documents, such as drafts of Biden's December 2015 speech to Ukraine's parliament. But we're to believe that nothing untoward happened between Joe Biden and, and, his, uh, and his son, which is nonsense. So Republicans, if they have the guts, and they don't usually, may launch an, in, uh, an impeachment inquiry into President Biden's role in Hunter's foreign business dealings. And if they do, if they do, it's a big if, it'll be in September after these slugs are done vacationing on the taxpayer's dime. So that's all I'll say on that, because that's all we get at the national level is Biden this and Biden that, and we should. He's corrupt. He has no integrity. He's as dirty as a day is long. A couple of things here that I'm sure you're not going to hear anywhere else. Uh, on a sad note, former New York Senator James Buckley uh, has died at the age of 100. That's a good long life. He passed away Friday at a hospital in D.C. He was born in New York City in 1923. He eventually won the race for U.S. Senator in 1970, ran as a member of the Conservative Party. Buckley also made a bid to become one of Connecticut's senators in 1980, but unfortunately lost to Democrat Chris Dodd. Later, he was a member of the Reagan administration and was also president of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, for a time in the 80s. He was appointed as a judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit by President Reagan in 1985, became a senior judge in 1996. Buckley is one of the few people to serve in all three branches of the federal government, in the executive, legislative, and judicial branches. And he was predeceased by his younger brother, Bill Buckley, who died in uh, 2008. Buckley founded National Review, a magazine that I used to subscribe to. Get all, I used to get all my information, most of it, from National Review. And they had some great columnists in those days, Buckley among them, Florence King, and uh, so many others. But the magazine kind of turned uh, kind of neocon over the, uh, the last several years, and I, I stopped subscribing. But Bill Buckley, uh, Buckley was a giant uh, who passed away 15 years ago. All right, on to uh, some other news. You know, I get a kick out of some of these people who say they just want common sense gun laws, these gun banners. We know what they want. These these red-shirted activists at Moms Demand Action swear they're not opposed to the Second Amendment. They're, they're only in favor of reasonable and common sense measures. But if that were the case, they'd be loving what happened recently. They should be praising this Mississippi woman who exercised her Second Amendment rights 
to protect her husband and son. I'm getting this from Cam Edwards in a column called Bearing Arms. Instead, just like with every other defensive gun use, MDA and gun control groups are not saying a word about the actions of this woman in Jackson, Mississippi, who used a firearm to fend off armed robbers targeting her husband and son. I'll read directly from uh, Cam Edwards' column. A man and his son were standing, this is according to the police report, standing outside their home in the 1100 block of Garden Park Drive about 2.30 a.m. Thursday when three men, all wearing masks, walked up to them and demanded money and keys to their vehicle. That's according to the uh, public information officer for the Jackson PD, Sam Brown. The victim's wife exited the home and fired multiple shots. You know, the old adage, shoot first, ask questions later. She hit one of the suspects. Brown said in a news release, the 17-year-old was shot once and died at the scene. Thou shalt not steal. The other suspects fired multiple shots and fled the scene on foot according to Brown, but one of the officers identified a 16-year-old who was later apprehended at a home on Violet Street. So she nailed one, killed one, and the other two, uh, well, one has been brought into custody, the other, I guess, is uh, at large. So far, no word on how the woman was able to identify the threat to her husband and son outside their home, but she was ready and willing to use force to protect them when they came under attack. Her actions, I mean, she took matters into her own hands. She, what's she going to do, call the police? Her husband and son could have been dead by the time cops arrived on the scene. Now, Kamala Harris told the attendees at Everytown's Gun Sense University Friday of last week that it's a false choice that you're either in favor of the Second Amendment or you want to take everyone's guns away. Let me tell you, Mrs. Vice President, you're not going to take anybody's guns away. But just like the anti-gun activists she was to whom she was speaking, Harris never really actually spoke up in favor of our right to keep and bear arms at all. She never would. She never will. Neither will Joe Biden. Neither will almost any Democrat, save for the, uh, the guy in West Virginia and in some of these red states. These Democrats are anti-American. Plain and simple. They hate America, most of them. And the ones who are communists and Marxists control the Democrat Party. But if Kamala, as she and Moms Demand Action contends, if they support both the right to keep and bear arms and reasonable gun control laws, whatever they are, then they can never actually acknowledge someone exercising their Second Amendment rights for positive uh, reasons. In this case, this woman killing one of the uh, young men who are trying to uh, rob her husband and, and her son. You know, they, I, you know, I just don't get, I do get it. I do get it. I, I see what this is all about. The truth is, most activists are not publicly calling for the eradication of our Second Amendment rights. Gabby Giffords mentioned that a few months ago. But that's exactly what they're looking to do. They never, ever praise the actions of armed citizens, like the mother in, in Jackson, Mississippi. They never, all they talk about is sensible, common sense gun laws. They want to take away your right to keep and bear arms. That's what they. That's the. That's the long range goal of these people. On to other news: a woman cannot pass her acting course exam, so she gets euthanized. I saw the headline in World Net Daily. I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> "Am I reading right?" It's unbelievable. Cassie Chesser wrote this piece in World Net Daily. 24 year old woman in Belgium was approved for euthanasia 
over severe depression. I couldn't believe this one. Just reading the headline is is enough to it piqued my interest. According to uh, Newsblad, again, this is in Belgium. I hope I got the pronunciation right. Eileen uh, Verve said her fear of never being successful in theater led to her depression six years ago. She went to take a drama course for which the entrance exam was too difficult, according to her. This is her quote. A year later, I played in a play by theater, Antigone, and that's where I felt how much I would like to do this for a living. But the realization that I could never do it as a job made me very unhappy. And that feeling has remained. That was her quote six years ago. Three years into her depression, she applied for euthanasia. How's that for having faith in God? I mean, it's, you know, obviously she's depressed. People, when they reach that point in their lives, they, they need help, obviously. It was approved this year, her request for euthanasia, by two psychiatrists and a doctor from Von Kell. Since then, I've been saying goodbye, she said. For many people, that is strange. I will never see them again. That remains a strange thought, but it does not scare me off. Veravet was euthanized in July. This is a sad, sad story all the way around. And it's not rare. A lot of people, especially over there in that part of Europe, uh, another young woman was euthanized last year after suffering PTSD following an ISIS terrorist attack. She also had been sexually assaulted and had made two prior suicide attempts. So this is a, you know, a young woman. She suffered, obviously, and it is beyond belief that she was given a lethal injection to deal with this. I mean, she was traumatized, obviously, and this is how she dealt with her trauma. She took her own life, or she had, you know, psychiatrists and doctors inject her. I mean, I can't imagine get, getting to that point in my life, because we have Christ, those of us who are Christians. I'm not judging her, but there's a, a quote here from a Right to Life spokesman in the UK, Catherine Robinson. But since euthanasia was legalized in 2002, listen to this statistic. Over 27,000 people have been killed in Belgium. Legally, the number continues to rise. Last year, euthanasia deaths rose by nearly 10% and accounted for 2.5% of all deaths in Belgium. And, you know, Robinson said that the cases such as these, they send a grim, grim message. Death is the only way out. This is a deeply tragic view of life and suffering, and it actively encourages this sort of think, thinking in people who are suffering the most. It is uh, just unbelievably sad that, you know, when you think you have no other recourse to, than to take your own life, because that kind of a decision is irreversible, obviously. And finally, there's a, a story from the NFL, and I'm a big Green Bay Packers fan, as you know, most of you. Uh, the Packers play the uh, New England Patriots over the weekend. I don't know where, where they are in the preseason. I think they're about halfway through it. And there's a there's a headline that says the good, bad, and the ugly from the Packers suspended preseason game versus the Patriots. Now, they had the, the positive uh, positives. The Packers had, had a 93-yard touchdown drive. Uh, Jordan Love, the quarterback, played well, and some of the defensive players played well, and they, they showed some of the uh, the negative aspects for the Packers in the game, 11 penalties and so, so on and so forth. The ugly they have as this Isaiah Bolden plays for the Patriots. I guess he was injured. 10-29 left in the, in the final period. The Packers were down 21-17. They were, they were going in for the, uh, the, the go-ahead touchdown. And the game was called on account of this injury. And uh, I guess Bolden, got, I didn't see the play, but he got hit in the side of the head, by the, in the side of his helmet by a teammate. 
after a catch by Packers receiver Malik Heath, and he stayed down on the field for several minutes, and eventually he was strapped onto a backboard and carted off the field. So he spent the night at a Green Bay Area hospital, but he was released, and he traveled back to New England, and he's with the Patriots. So the coaches, Matt LaFleur of the Packers and Bill Belichick, of the Patriots agreed to end the game early, and the commissioner of football, Roger Goodell, went along with the decision. So again, the Packers going in for the go-ahead score to take the lead, and this this young guy gets hit by a teammate, the side of the head, he goes down, and they end the game. Now, they did this last year when that Buffalo Bills uh, player was injured. Went down and, you know, had to be hospitalized for a few days. Uh, I don't know if this guy was concussed here, this uh, guy in the Patriots, but I mean, you don't end the game over an injury. I remember Joe Mon, or uh, quarterback for the Washington Redskins, and they'll soon be the Redskins again, uh, Joe Theismann, in a game against the Giants, had his leg broken. I mean, his leg folded up like a cheap suit. It was the sickest thing I've ever seen. But they took him off the field. They blew up his, uh, they put a you know a cast around his leg, and they, they carted him off the field, and his career was done at that point. But they continued the game. There are a lot of players who've been seriously injured. Daryl Stingley was paralyzed back in the 70s or early 80s by a hit by Jack Tatum. That game continued. They didn't end the game. I don't know what's going on lately. I mean, it's like this, it's like the NFL is, is given way to some of this, I won't say woke, but it's like a, a feminization of our culture. That's, I think, the overarching issue. I mean, these men are tough, large men. They know the risks involved when they strap out on, on a helmet. They they make millions of dollars every year. A lot of these uh, these guys, but to end the game over an injury and he's back up and you know, he had to spend the night in the hospital, but he's back with his team. I yeah, I just don't get it. I, I just if you, if somebody can make me understand what's happening, I'd, I'd appreciate it. Because uh, you know I'm 64 years old. When I watched football back in the in the 60s and 70s, and these guys, <laughs> there, there were bones broken, and, and but the game never ended. Guys can cost taken out on stretchers and, you know, for a couple of minutes, the, the rest of the team and, and players on the other team will get down on their knees and uh, as a show of solidarity, but they would continue after the player was carted off. Anyway, I don't want to spend too much time on it. If you uh, want to contact me directly, you can do that. It's uh, Pacman, P-A-C-M-A-N, at the B-M-G network.com, all lowercase, and we'll, uh, we'll discuss it maybe via email. Thank you very much, folks, for tuning us in. If you like the program, please hit like, hit subscribe, and share with your friends on Facebook and uh, on other social media. We appreciate you listening, as always. And check out the fine programming we have for you on the BMG Network. We have this program with me, Ted Flint, the Pac-Man. We do that once a week at least. And uh, my daughter Madeline has a show called The Essentials with Maddie Flint. That airs uh, later in the week, I think. And uh, Adrian Ross with a show on Tuesdays. Her, her shows are great. So check them all out. And uh, some columns up there as well under the Pack Perspective. Thanks for tuning us in. And if the Lord wills it, we will talk to you soon. The Pac-Man Podcast was produced and edited in the BMG Studio. Music by Kevin McLeod. For more episodes of the Pac-Man Podcast, go to the bmgnetwork.com or go to the BMG Network on Facebook. And be sure to tune into the next episode of the Pac-Man Podcast with Ted Flint.